Hey everyone, I'm Gunnar Hauser, and it's great to have you back for another installment of Ancient Weirdness. Today we're going to be returning to military history and examining the evidence for some very interesting weapons employed in ancient times. One that's very interesting because it's only attested in a few instances is a very primitive type of flamethrower used during the time of the Peloponnesian War. Now, this device is really only described by one ancient author, Thucydides, our main historian for the Peloponnesian War. And the year was 424 BC, and it occurred right after a major battle in central Greece at a place called Delian. This was a defeat for the Athenians. They were defeated by soldiers from Thebes and other towns in the region of Boeotia. Now, the Athenians had built a fortress at Delian, which the survivors retreated to, and then the Thebans and other Boeotians attacked the fort and were able to capture it. Thucydides describes, however, a weapon that assisted them in this task, and the flamethrower that he described involved a long wooden beam, presumably a very long tree trunk, that had been sawn in half and hollowed out, and then put back together and shielded with iron. At one end of the beam, a metal vessel hung on chains, and this was filled with burning coals, sulfur, and also pitch. On the other side, the operational side, there was a bellows. So this device was wheeled up towards one of the ramparts of the fortress that had quite a bit of wood, presumably just spare lumber and so forth, as a major part of the rampart. And the flamethrower was brought close enough so that when the bellows were worked, air took sparks and flames out of the burning mixture in the vessel. And Thucydides says it worked. It actually set the wall ablaze, cleared the wall of defenders, and the Boeotians were able to capture the fortress. Thucydides finds this interesting enough to mention and give some detail on. He doesn't say who invented this flamethrower. And there's only one other very brief reference to it being used by a Spartan commander in a siege in northern Greece a year or so later. And these are the only references we have to this device at all. Now, just a few centuries later, we have some very famous descriptions of even more exotic weapons deployed by the inventor Archimedes. This was done in defense of his hometown of Syracuse on the island of Sicily against a Roman attack in 212 BC. Weapons that were mainly used against the Roman ships in the harbor of Syracuse. A device known as the claw, some kind of iron grip or hand that could seize hold of ships, capsize or sink them, or otherwise damage them. But continuing this incendiary theme from Thucydides' flamethrower, we have a description of a kind of heat ray, a collection of bronze mirrors that focus the sun's rays against these wooden Roman ships. There's been a number of modern attempts to build versions of these contraptions. The claw does seem to have been within the technological possibilities of the time. The heat ray has been far more difficult to really establish as fact. There's been many modern experiments trying to recreate it with varying levels of success. Sometimes they have actually ignited flames aboard wooden vessels using mirrors, but conditions have to be almost perfect. The ships have to be more or less stationary. There can't be a cloud in the sky. It's got to be maximum sunlight. But the story of the heat ray was very persistent in antiquity, described by a number of authors, including a Byzantine author, Anthemius of Trallis, who was an inventor in his own right. He wrote a book that's unfortunately mostly lost called On Miraculous Engines, 
Among other things, he's credited with inventing an earthquake machine that he used against one of his rivals at the imperial court, a man named Xenon. The guys really disliked each other. So played a little trick on Xenon where he had these leather tubes attached to the guy's house and steam was pumped through them. And it shook the house, simulating an earthquake. And Xenon ran out of his house screaming in a panic. And they all had a cheap laugh at his expense. Now, as we get into the time of late antiquity and the early medieval period, there was a far more sophisticated incendiary weapon developed in the Mediterranean world, which is commonly called Greek fire. This was developed in the Byzantine Empire. We do have an inventor's name attached to it by the chroniclers, which the year given for this is 672 AD. He was an architect named Kalinikos. Now, this device involved projecting the flammable material out of a tube or siphon, as it was called. The problem is we don't know the exact ingredients. However, different writers mentioned several that they thought went into it, including a petroleum product known as naphtha, also quicklime, sulfur and resin, just as we saw with the Boeotian flamethrower. Now, naphtha petroleum naturally bubbles up to the surface in several parts of the Middle East. The Byzantines might have used a few sites in the Black Sea region to gather the naphtha. Bitumen or asphalt was discovered the same way and has been used since the very beginning of civilization for waterproofing and as a construction adhesive for things like mud bricks. Now, this flammable material had been known for some time, but Kalinikos developed an integrated system where it seems that there was a tank that would be pressurized by hand pumps and also heated, so there had to be some kind of a flame burning underneath the tank. The pressure would be released, the material would be projected out of the siphon. At the end of the siphon, they had to keep some kind of a burning wick, because of course you can't ignite it in the tank. Supposedly it could be projected to a great distance, and there would be a terrible roar. And it was mainly used by the Byzantines aboard ships. Now, of course, ships are still made out of wood at this time in history, so you can imagine how devastating a weapon this could be. It is attested as being used on land a few times. They would mount this device on wagons. The majority of references are to it being used in naval warfare. So it created a destructive and also sticky mixture. It said that water actually made it burn at a higher temperature and that the only things that could extinguish it were sand, vinegar, or urine. While ships aren't in the habit of keeping large amounts of sand, vinegar, or urine on board, there wasn't much defense against this weapon at all. It was used by the Byzantines against the Arabs, against a tribe called the Bulgars, against the Rus, people of Viking descent settled in what is now Russia, because it was used to prevent the capture of the capital city of Constantinople on more than one occasion. The enemies of the Byzantines did capture some of the siphons and systems, but weren't able to recreate it very well, although naphtha could be used as a weapon of war. Ceramic bombs or grenades, it could be catapulted or thrown at an enemy. But after a period of time, many things about the weapon system invented by Kalinikos were just forgotten. Of course, this is all moving in the direction of the invention of gunpowder. However, we don't have any ancient evidence for that. Gunpowder seems to have been devised for the first time in China during the Song Dynasty, right around the turn of the first millennium AD, comprised of sulfur and potassium nitrate, or saltpeter. Ironically, they were looking for elixirs to prolong life, and what they came up with was something to end life. And it was employed in bombs that could be thrown or launched from catapults, then eventually in the first firearms, which date from roughly the 13th century. 
the first use of gunpowder and firearms in Western warfare was the so-called Hundred Years' War between France and England that broke out in the early 1300s. Now, we also know of a case of chemical warfare, and this comes from the 3rd century AD. It's been dated to the year 256 AD, to be precise. And this was the siege of a Roman town and fortress called Dura Europos, which today is located in the eastern part of Syria. This city had been founded in the Hellenistic period by the Macedonian dynasty called the Seleucids, and it changed hands several times between the Romans and the Parthians, but then by the 3rd century AD were in the midst of wars between the Romans and the Sasanian Persian dynasty. So this was a Sasanian siege of a Roman garrison. Now, a very common siege technique in the ancient world was for a besieging force to dig tunnels, mines, underneath fortification walls. This would mainly be a way to weaken the walls, to bring them down. Because defenders were aware of this tactic, they would often try to dig their own tunnels as countermines. We do occasionally hear about hand-to-hand fighting taking place in tunnels, but there wouldn't have been a whole lot of room for such a thing. The 4th century BC Greek writer Aeneas Tacticus, in his military manual on sieges, advises defenders to use bees or hornets to drop them into the tunnels so that the swarms would clear out attackers. And there's also references to smoke being used. There's a very vivid account in the historian Polybius of a Roman siege of the Greek town of Ambrakia, where the Roman attackers began to dig a tunnel, and they tried to hide its location from the defenders as best they could. But when the defenders noticed a heap of loose soil that had obviously been pulled out of the ground, what's called a spoil heap, they discovered that a tunnel was being built. They just weren't sure exactly where the tunnel was, what line of direction it was coming towards the fortification walls from. So they dug their own trench inside the wall, parallel to the wall, And they hung a row of very thin bronze containers, and they watched them closely. Eventually, they were able to see one of them vibrating, and they realized that that was indicating the direction that the tunnel was coming from, vibration transmitted through the soil by the action of the digging. So that's where they dug their counter tunnel. Then the defenders came up with a very interesting idea. They put a clay container with holes in it inside the tunnel, and it was filled with burning coals and feathers. And they used a bellows to power the smoke, and the stench of the burning feathers filled the tunnel and cleared the Romans out. However, something far more deadly might have been used at Dura Europas, in this case by the attackers. The original excavators in the 20th century located a tunnel and a counter tunnel. The excavators found almost two dozen skeletons of Romans, marked, of course, by their equipment, their armor, who had died in the tunnel, but also one Sasanian Persian soldier. Of course, that would not have been a fair fight, but the original hypothesis was that it was some kind of hand-to-hand melee. Of course, that didn't make sense of how one guy could have killed 19 and then been killed in the process himself. But in the tunnel, they also found crystals of sulfur and bitumen related to naphtha. And doctors know that smoke of sulfur and bitumen, if enough of it is inhaled, it will actually change to acid in the lungs. So a new theory was devised to explain the archaeological find, that when the Sasanians realized that their tunnel had been discovered, that the Romans were digging a counter tunnel, once the Romans rushed in, the Persian forces withdrew from the tunnel 
but they lit a fire of sulfur and bitumen. And quite possibly the one Persian casualty that was found was the guy who set the fire and he just didn't escape from the tunnel quickly enough. So if this theory is true, these would be the first physically attested casualties of chemical warfare in human history. Sometimes animals could be used in warfare, particularly in sieges. I mentioned the use of bees and hornets. We also have a case not too far from Dura Europas, the site of Hatra in what is now northern Iraq, when it was besieged by Roman forces under the Emperor Septimius Severus late in the 2nd century AD. There are stories that the defenders launched earthenware pots from catapults that were full of scorpions. And the local scorpions are notorious for an incredibly painful and sometimes fatal sting. And that this contributed to Severus breaking off the siege and giving up. Something similar is attested for a sea battle that happened many centuries before that between two Hellenistic leaders, King Prusius I of Bithynia, in what is now northern Turkey, and the king of the neighboring coastal region, Eumenes II of Pergamum. The Bithynian forces had a famous military advisor on hand, Hannibal, the Carthaginian general. This is years after his famous invasion of Italy, the Second Punic War that he waged against the Romans. He had had to flee Carthage, and he moved between several Hellenistic kingdoms of the east, serving again as an advisor, a military consultant. He advised the Bithynian forces to use shipboard catapults to launch clay pots full of serpents at the Pergamene forces. But Hannibal already knew a little something about the use of animals, and this is quite different from what I've described in terms of harnessing venomous or dangerous insects or reptiles. This is the use of elephants in war. This is a military practice that can be traced back to India, and the first encounter of Westerners with this type of warfare was when Alexander the Great's army had reached the borders of India, and there was a battle with a local warlord named Porus. Now, Alexander's army won this engagement, but Porus's elephants did wreak havoc against some of his men. So Greeks and Macedonians now learned of the potential of using elephants in warfare. Of course, these were Indian elephants, a species known today as Alephus maximus. But a large number of them were given to the founder of the Seleucid kingdom that I mentioned earlier, Seleucus I, by an Indian ruler named Chandragupta. So the Seleucid army began to use these Indian elephants, and the practice was picked up by other Hellenistic monarchs. The Ptolemies, based in Egypt, used African elephants, although these were not the elephants that we're familiar with as African elephants today. Instead, they were most likely from a species called Loxodonta africana cyclotus, or the forest elephant, smaller on average. But the Ptolemies had an elephant corps in their military. It seems in general that war elephants were trained after being captured in the wild. Members of the Indian species were large enough that they could have some kind of a structure or turret mounted on the back that soldiers could ride in, archers, javelin throwers, slingers. When you combine this with their great size and weight, their ability to trample enemy forces or kill them with their tusks, you can see their great potential as terror weapons, especially for soldiers who are completely unfamiliar with them until they encountered them on the battlefield. There's one battle on record between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the Battle of Raphia, located in the modern Palestinian territory near Gaza, where the Ptolemies were using African elephants and the Seleucids were using Indian elephants. 
So this was a battle between two species of elephants as well as between two human kingdoms. And even though the Ptolemies won the battle, their elephants were no match for the Indian ones. Ptolemy IV's African elephants actually panicked. The account of this battle is also found in Polybius, where he states that the African elephants were terrified by not only the size and strength of their Indian counterparts, but also their smell and the noise of their trumpeting. The Seleucids also used elephants against a group of Jewish rebels known as the Maccabees a few decades later. At the Battle of Beth Zechariah in 162 BC, one of the Jewish rebels, a man named Eleazar, saw an elephant during the battle that seemed to be resplendent with very elaborate armor, and he guessed that it must be carrying the boy king Antiochus V, and decided he could take down this elephant himself. So he rushed at the elephant, he speared it, and he was successful in inflicting a fatal wound on it, but it then collapsed upon him, and Eleazar died. Stranger variant of the story is found in a book called the Megillot, what seems to be a fictionalized version of the Maccabee Revolt, written many centuries later, where they found Eleazar's body in a pile of elephant excrement. Doesn't really sound like a dignified way to find a hero's remains. Connected to this is a story in the third book of Maccabees where Ptolemy IV of Egypt was going to carry out an execution of a large number of Jews in Alexandria, and he was going to have them executed by elephants, having the elephants trample them, crush their heads. But miraculously, this execution never took place. Ptolemy overslept the first time that the execution was scheduled. Then another time he drank so much that he forgot all about it, and eventually the execution was called off and the prisoners were released. Now, the first taste of battle with elephants that the Romans experienced was when they dealt with the expedition of a king from the western part of Greece, Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus of Epirus, a cousin of Alexander the Great's. The army of Epirus included a force of Indian elephants, and Pyrrhus brought them aboard ship in the crossing from Greece to Italy. It was probably not a whole lot of fun to take these elephants aboard ships. We should take just a moment to salute those great unsung Greek heroes who kept those elephants calm as the ships rocked in those heavy seas. The first time they were used against the Romans, they were quite effective, but the Romans learned quickly, and they developed special anti-elephant wagons from which soldiers mounted on the wagons, which were protected by spikes and so forth, would throw burning grapnels against Pyrrhus's elephants. These wagons were first used at the Battle of Asculum. The first time the Romans captured a large number of Pyrrhus's elephants, they were marched in a victory procession and then slaughtered. Now, Hannibal's invasion of Italy was an invasion where he brought several of the North African elephants. This was the species used by the Carthaginians. Although Hannibal himself may have actually ridden an Indian elephant, his own personal elephant was named Surus, which might mean the Syrian, and that would mean he would have acquired it somehow from the Seleucids. Several elephants were taken on the famous march through the Alps. However, almost all of them died the following winter in Italy. The greatest number of elephants used in battle by the Carthaginians was in 202 BC at the Battle of Zama, some distance from Carthage in modern-day Tunisia. Hannibal had a force to defend the homeland that included over 80 elephants. By this time, the Romans were pretty good at dealing with this tactic. Elephants can be made to charge forward, but trying to get them to change direction was much more difficult. Actually, sometimes elephants panicked if they were wounded, got completely out of control, and could start trampling your own guys. 
So the individuals who were the ones who goaded the elephants and gave commands to them, called mahuts, they also carried a hammer and a spike on their belts as an insurance policy. If the elephants could not be controlled, it said that they could pound that spike into the base of the elephant's skull and bring them down. But as the elephants charged at Zama, the Roman formation simply opened up passages for them to charge through. And then spearmen ran from the sides or from behind to spear the elephants in the underbelly and brought them down. The Romans did form their own elephant corps. They used elephants against Gauls in northern Italy on a few occasions. Elephants were even involved in yet another battle in North Africa, the Battle of Thapsus in 46 BC. In this case, it was Romans against Romans where the enemies of Julius Caesar employed elephants that they got from the neighboring kingdom of Numidia. However, the elephants proved ineffective. They panicked, began to trample the men on their own side, and the 5th Legion adopted the elephant as its official symbol because one group of enemy elephants charged them and they stood their ground. But eventually, the tactic faded away. It was brought back by the Sasanian Persians, The Sasanians used elephants in the siege of a town called Edessa, which today is in southeastern Turkey, and the defenders once again showed amazing ingenuity by attaching a live pig to the end of a long wooden pole, dangling it over the edge of the battlements, and frightening the elephants away. Thanks again for joining me and wallowing in some ancient weirdness. We'll see you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.